The film Borat is a mockumentary comedy film starring the British Jewish actor Sasha Baron Cohen. The protagonist of the film is Borat, a man from Kazakhstan who comes to America to make a movie. Borat's job is basically to interact with Americans and capture their reactions on film. Sasha Baron Cohen does an incredible job pretending to be this clueless Kazakhstani journalist. Because he is in the guise of a foreigner, Sasha Baron Cohen, as Borat, can elicit all kinds of revealing information from Americans. In one of the most legendary scenes, Borat goes to a rodeo in one of America's red states, we might say. He is dressed like a cowboy, and his button-down shirt is in the style of an American flag. He is getting ready to sing the Kazakh national anthem, and beforehand he gives a speech to the crowd. The movie was filmed in 2006, and so here, Borat references America's war in Iraq. Ladies and gentlemen of Salem, Virginia, would you please give a warm American welcome to a gentleman who has come all the way from Kazakhstan, and we are honored to have singing our national anthem. Ladies and gentlemen, Borat Sakia. My name is Borat, I come from Kazakhstan. Can I say first, we support your war of terror. May we show our support to our boys in Iraq. May USA kill every single terrorist. May George Bush drink the blood of every single man, woman, and child of Iraq. May you destroy their country so that for the next thousand years, not even a single lizard will survive in their desert. To show our friendship, I now will sing our Kazakh national anthem to the tune of your national anthem. Listen. Kazakhstan is the greatest country in the world. All other countries are run by little girls. Kazakhstan is number one exporter of potassium. Other Central Asian countries have inferior potassium. Kazakhstan is the greatest country in the world, all of the countries, is the home of the gays. What this scene endeavors to show is how people, when they are in a crowd, are often ready to cheer statements which they may not actually believe. Borat says, for example, we support your war of terror. The crowd cheers, although actually they are being insulted. By referring to it as a war of terror rather than a war on terror, Borat, that is, Sasha Baron Cohen, 
is flipping the script and calling the Americans the terrorists. A few moments later, Borat says, May George Bush drink the blood of every man, woman, and child of Iraq. Again, the crowd passionately cheers. It is doubtful, however, that if you sat down these Americans and asked them if they really wanted George Bush to drink the blood of Iraqi children, they would respond in the affirmative. Maybe a few of them would, but most would not, or would at least be confused by the very question. Yet, in this scene, Sasha Baron Cohen shows how when one is in a crowd of one's fellow countrymen, one becomes ready to cheer on all sorts of statements which one may not really believe. While this is merely a funny scene in a mockumentary, it has frightening implications. Baron Cohen shows that when you combine nationalism or jingoism with crowd thinking or crowd mentality, civilized people can quickly turn into barbarians. Whether we should feel proud to be a part of a particular nation or ethnic group is a complicated question. I have seen Americans chant the well-known cry, U.S.A., with tears in their eyes. I have also seen Americans chant this with ironic, mocking grins. In fact, you can usually tell how nationalistic and jingoistic a country will be by how many times nationalism has come back to bite them in the ass. For this reason, nationalism has become particularly passé in Western European countries. Why should this be? It is because nationalism and crowd thinking led Central and Western Europe through Dante's seven circles of hell during the early 20th century. Today, Europeans tend to turn their nose up when they see other countries or even their own people behaving like jingoistic hooligans. But this is only because they have seen this movie before. They themselves were these jingoistic hooligans a little over 100 years ago. The creation of the European Union has established a harmony and goodwill between European countries, which has been a true blessing on the world stage. But of course, it was not always this way. In the beginning of the 20th century, France and Germany were as bitter and mistrustful of enemies as America is today with Iran. Today, perhaps a German will admit that the cheese is better in France, and a Frenchman will say that the Germans have better cars. But, at least so far as I can gather, neither would ever say that France is a superior country to Germany, or that a French person is a superior being to a German. Yet, when World War I or the Great War broke out in 1914, these beliefs in nationalistic superiority would have been pervasive. This way of thinking could not just be found in propaganda posters or in war songs. It was often embedded in the psyche of the citizens of these countries. In 1947, Thomas Mann would publish his novel, Dr. Faustus, which he wrote during the Second World War. The epic novel takes readers through the first half of 20th century German history by following the lives of the composer Adrian Leverkuhn and his best friend, the, narr the narrator Serenus Zeitblom. When they are in high school, they get into a group debate with other German students about nationalistic differences and the superiority of Germans. What is particularly revealing about this debate is that it occurs before even the First World War. It occurs in an innocuous, harmless setting in which nothing is at stake. It shows that these are just casual beliefs that people held at the time. The young men are theology students in the German city of Halle. While wandering through the Thuringer Forest, 
they get into a philosophical discussion on subjects such as capitalism, creativity, and the mission of the German youth. In their discussion, they use all kinds of fancy intellectual jargon. One student named Deutschland is particularly nationalistic, believing in the promise of the next generation of Germans. Deutschland believes that youth, particularly the German youth, have the power to change the status quo. He says, quote, To be young means to be primordial, to have remained close to the wellspring of life, means being able to rise up and shake off the fetters of an outmoded civilization to dare what others lack the vital courage to do. Deutschland continues to go on and on like this. Eventually, another student, getting a bit annoyed, chimes in. This student's name is Teutleben. Teutleben says to Deutschland, What I'd like to know is whether the youth of other nations lie in a straw like this and torment themselves with problems and contradictions. Deutschland responds to Teutleben by saying, quote, Hardly. For them, everything is intellectually much easier and cozier, unquote. Another student answers, The Russian revolutionary youth is an exception. There you'll find vigorous intellectual discussions and a hell of a lot of dialectical tension. Deutschland responds, The Russians have depth, but no form. The Western European countries have form, but no depth. Only we Germans have both together. What you'll notice about this conversation is how effortlessly and naturally Deutschland makes distinctions between people of different countries while proclaiming his own country to be the best. In Europe today, this is now, for the most part, a lost world. Europeans sort of realized, after the apocalypse of not just one world war, but two, that nationalism was a fool's game. It was an exercise in idiocy. We're all just Europeans, they concluded, eventually. The differences between us, if there are any, are so minuscule that they're not even worth discussing, let alone going to war over. But you can see how, today, in those countries which didn't go through two world wars because of nationalism, they often think much the way Europe did 100 plus years ago. Now, here you might be thinking, hold on, I've met a proud Italian, a proud Englishman, a proud Spaniard. These countries still retain some nationalistic pride, but it is far less obnoxious, imperialistic, or obsessive than it was, say, in 1900. But the least nationalistic country in Europe, if not the world, is, unsurprisingly, Germany. The reasons for this should be obvious. Whereas most countries lost one world war due to nationalism, Germany lost two. And whereas Germany may have been unfairly blamed for the first world war, no one had any doubts about Germany's boundless guilt for the second. And this time, Germany also had the genocide of millions of people on its bloody hands. In Germany today, nationalism is not only quiet, it is taboo. The idea of flying a German flag in front of their homes is unthinkable to most Germans. Germany is the best country in the world is a sentence which does not cross many lips here. Much has changed since Deutschland's impromptu speech to his friends in the Thuringer Forest. But it is not just that Germans put on appearances that they aren't nationalistic, and then, behind closed doors, pull out the black, gold, and red flag and sing hymns composed by Martin Luther. They genuinely do not understand nationalism. They think it's a bit senseless. 
Why should one be proud for one's country, they reason. They think, you didn't do anything to become a citizen of whatever country you're a citizen of. You were just born that way. It's not something to take pride in because it has nothing to do with you or your own personal accomplishments. It's a mature outlook, to be sure. But let's remember that it's an outlook Germany had to learn the hard way. You are listening to The Shrift, episode 45, Key Tableau. In the Parsha this week, Ki Tavo, Moshe continues his final speech to the Israelites. Yet, this time the Israelites themselves get to speak a bit. And when I say a bit, I really mean it. Their only response is to cry Amen to everything Moshe says. The scene is reminiscent of a general leading his troops into war, which, in fact, is exactly what Moses is doing. We have all witnessed these scenes in movies where the general cries out some phrase to which the only response is yes, or amen, or ya. So far, so good. Moses is just getting his troops motivated before leading them into the promised land. But the words Moses uses to get his people riled up are a bit strange. He does not say things like, are we God's chosen people? Or, are we going to go kick some ass? Or, are we ready to meet the destiny of our people? No. Instead, he lists off some idiosyncratic laws. Cursed is he who misdirects a blind person on his way. Amen. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe in the case of the murder of an innocent person. Amen. Cursed is he who lies down with his mother-in-law. Amen. Cursed is he who does not follow these teachings. Amen. Okay, the last one was pretty inspirational, but the others were rather unmotivating. But just as Moshe has his people agreeing with everything he says, totally under his control, ready to follow him to the end of the earth, he changes his tone. At this point, most generals and leaders would happily send their people into battle when they are feeling drunk with nationalistic passion, invincible through the hysteria of the crowd. But rather than send his troops into battle, feeling like they are indestructible, Moshe decides to take them down a notch, actually many notches. Moshe will then embark on one of the most dispiriting, gloomy, demoralizing speeches. The speech is awfully similar to the one Moses gives in the Parsha of Behukotai, which I discussed in episode 29. Moses spends a bit of time telling the Hebrews all of the good things which will happen to them if they follow God's laws. But then Moses explains the terrible things which will befall them if they disobey God's laws. 
The potential blessings Moses lists are outweighed by the potential curses by a ratio of about three to one in this earlier parsha. In the second speech, now at the end of the Torah, the ratio of curses to blessings is now about five to one. Let me give you some excerpts from this speech so you have an idea of what Moses is saying to his people. If you do not obey God and faithfully follow all of his commandments, cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. God will strike you with the Egyptian inflammation, with hemorrhoids, boil scars, and itch from which you shall never recover. The life you face shall be precarious. You shall be in terror night and day with no assurance of survival. God will let loose against you calamity, panic, and frustration in all the enterprises you undertake. Just a few minutes before, the Israelites were boisterously yelling, Amen. They were proud young Hebrews, ready for battle. But now, Moses has silenced the crowd. The Hebrews are now shivering with terror rather than feeling proud and inspired. Why does Moses do this? Why does Moses insist on sapping the spirit out of his people just before sending them into war, especially when they had just been so fervent and passionate? Put simply, no general, no football coach, no motivational speaker would ever address his people this way. Interestingly, just after concluding this speech, Moses will begin his next speech to the Hebrews by saying, You saw all that God did before your very eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to his whole country, the amazing signs and wonders which he did to them. But it was not until today that God gave you a mind to understand, eyes to see, ears to hear. Let's recap for a moment. First, Moses stirs up the crowd, but does so with some rather strange rallying cries. Cursed is he who lies with his sister. Cursed is he who lies with an animal. Cursed is he who misdirects a blind person on his way, and so forth. Then, at the height of excitement, Moses turns the speech against the Hebrews, shaking them and demoralizing them. Finally, after telling the Hebrews that they must do exactly what I say, or else they will be forever cursed, Moses tells them that today they have been given, for the first time, a mind to understand, eyes to see, and ears to hear. What Moses is trying to communicate to them is, I think, wake up, wake up. Do you see how I was able to take you on a roller coaster of emotions just by the way in which I spoke to you? Are you only affirming what I say because you are caught up in the emotions of the crowd and because you belong to this specific nation? Moses, in short, wants the Hebrews to think, to think for themselves, because he, on the verge of death, will no longer be able to think for them. This does not mean that they should lose their nationalist pride in being Hebrews, or that they shouldn't follow the commandments. Quite the contrary. Moses wishes to say, Be proud in your nation, but be so thoughtfully, skeptically, questioningly. Follow the commandments, not because I am forcing you to, but because you have used your mind to understand them.
I recently saw the 2012 film Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt is considered to be one of the most important philosophical thinkers of the 20th century. She was born in East Prussia, in Königsberg, in 1906. She finished her high school in Berlin. For university, she studied with the legendary philosophers Martin Heidegger and Karl Jaspers in West Germany. With Heidegger, she would have a brief love affair while studying at his university in Freiburg. When the Nazis came to power in 1933, Arendt, being Jewish, was briefly put in a concentration camp. When she was released, she fled Germany and eventually landed in the United States, where she would write her most important philosophical treatises. The 2012 film recounts Arendt's experience covering the out of Eichmann trial in Jerusalem in 1961. Eichmann was the Nazi in charge of operating the trains which carried millions of Jews to their deaths in the gas chambers. Mossad, Israel's secret service, was able to hunt Eichmann down in Argentina and bring him to court in Jerusalem. At his trial, Eichmann made the classic Nazi defense that he was just following orders. Eichmann was pronounced guilty and hanged. This would be the only time that Israel would use capital punishment in its history. Arendt was retained by The New Yorker magazine to write a series of articles on her coverage of the trial. What emerged from these articles was her sensational or sensationalist book, The Manality of Evil. As Arendt watched Eichmann in court, she was amazed by how ordinary he was. He was just, according to Arendt, a bureaucrat. He didn't look like the monstrous mass murderer that he was. Arendt concluded that what made Eichmann such a terrifying figure was that he was capable of committing such horrific, abominable deeds without even thinking about it or questioning it. Arendt wrote, quote, For when I speak of the banality of evil, I do so only on the strictly factual level pointing to a phenomenon which stared one in the face at the trial. Eichmann was not Iago and not Macbeth, and nothing would have been farther from his mind than to determine with Richard III to prove a villain. Except for an extraordinary diligence in looking out for his personal advancement, he had no motives at all. He merely, to put the matter colloquially, never realized what he was doing." Unquote. As you might imagine, Arendt's articles in The New Yorker unleashed an outrage among the Jewish community, both in America and in Israel. Arendt received thousands of letters of hate mail. She received death threats. Many of her closest Jewish friends disowned her. Why? First, it was obvious to them that Eichmann was not just a bureaucrat. He was evil. He took joy in murdering as many Jews as he could. He knew exactly what he was doing and relished it. They viewed Arendt as excusing Eichmann when she should have been condemning him. Second, they viewed Arendt's articles as treasonous. How could she turn the Holocaust into a philosophical discussion? Why did she not write an article expressing her love of the Jewish people and her hatred of all those who try to harm them, exterminate them? One Jewish woman wrote to Arendt, for example, that she, quote, hoped the ghosts of our six million martyrs would haunt your bed at night, unquote. Arendt was a contrarian. She loved to be skeptical, to question all norms. In short, as a philosopher, she liked to think, and to make others think. After seeing this film, I came to a couple of conclusions as to why 
Arendt really wrote The Banality of Evil. She was looking beyond Eichmann himself. She didn't care about figuring out to what extent Eichmann was a psychopath. She didn't want to just write another of thousands of books and articles talking about how evil and terrible the Nazis were. What Arendt realized is that condemnation is only worth something if thought goes into it first. If you condemn merely because you feel pressure to do so, or because everyone else is doing it as a kind of knee-jerk reaction, then your words become meaningless. Anyone can snarl, decry, insult, denounce. And because anyone can do it, it rather quickly loses its potency. It is also very easy for people to fake this reaction. One thing that can't be faked, however, or at least not so easily faked, is an argument which grapples with nuances, contradictions, and subtle provocations. And this is what Arendt wanted to do. Arendt saw more value in depicting Eichmann as an automatized bureaucrat than as a malicious villain. Why? Because Arendt realized that if we depict Eichmann as a malicious villain, we can outsource this evil. We can say, he is an anomaly, he is a deviant, we will never see the likes of him again for another few hundred years. How much more valuable would it be to think that Eichmanns are everywhere in society, that, if we are not careful, we might find ourselves sharing a drink with an Eichmann, or even married to one, that, if we are not careful, a piece of Eichmann may emerge within ourselves. Arendt accused Eichmann of not thinking, and it is not hard to see the provocative implications of this argument. She was not so subtly hinting to her fellow Jews that they themselves must think, and what she witnessed at the Eichmann trial was a disappointing lack of thought among her fellow Jews. Eichmann was a monster, but this accusation is only worth something if it comes through independent thought, not automatized knee-jerk reactions. Otherwise, the accusation turns back on the accuser. Arendt wanted to say, if we look at Eichmann and can't even entertain the thought that he might be anything other than a repulsive, soulless barbarian, then what does that say about ourselves? What do we call those people who are only capable of thinking one thing, who cannot handle counter-arguments, who form judgments without first thinking them through? We call them robots. We call them soulless. We call them barbarians. We might even call them Nazis. And Arendt wanted to make sure that her people, the Jews, and all people, should never come close to thinking or not thinking this way. This is why she had to depict Eichmann as a motiveless bureaucrat, even though he really was a monster. Far too often, nations believe that they are the best unconditionally. There is theoretically nothing wrong with having pride in your nation, but this pride is only worth something if you approach it with doubt and skepticism rather than blind, unthinking jingoism. The Jews are often taught that they are the chosen people, that God chose the Jews above all other nations. But actually, it is a lot more complicated than that. If you read the Torah this week, it states that we are God's treasured people, not chosen. It then states that if, if we follow God's commandments, he will raise us above the other nations. This if clause sets up a dynamic in which the Jews could go from being God's favorite to his least favorite nation in a matter of seconds. This is because the extent to which we follow the commandments is, of course, always in flux. This if clause forces us to do what Moses encourages, to be constantly questioning our actions, 
to be constantly wondering if we are the best nation, and not just to conclude that we are the best as if it were a foregone decision. Yoga is one of the few physical activities, perhaps we can call it a sport, which involves no competition. There are no yoga contests, no yoga Olympics, no yoga awards, at least so far as I know. You can't ever be the best yogi. You can never win at yoga. Yoga instead involves a constant questioning of ourselves and a continually developing relationship with ourselves. When you practice yoga, it is just you and your mat. The only person you compete with is, in fact, yourself. And the only way you can become satisfied is by seeing improvement in yourself, not by comparing yourself with others. This is the attitude we should have when we view ourselves as part of nations, that we love our nation, not because it is the best or it is the chosen nation, but because it is ours. It is the best nation for us. When we view ourselves as part of a nation, we should see ourselves on the yoga mat, wondering how we can improve our posture, trying to challenge ourselves within our own limitations, viewing ourselves not as chosen, but as treasured. to joy the God descended, daughter of Elysium, ray of mirth and rapture blended, goddess to thy shrine we come, by thy magic is united, what's in custom parted by all mankind are brothers plighted, Thy gentle wings abide. Freude, schöne Götterfunken, Tochter aus Elysium, dir betreten Feuertrunken, himmlische dein Heiligtum. Deine Zauber binden wieder, was die Mode streng geteilt. Alle Menschen werden Brüder, wo dein sanfter Fliegel weilt. Slow and check the eager, help the weak and curb the strong. None shall push aside another, none shall let another fall. March beside me, oh my brothers, all for one.